Welcome back to, I was going to say Sleep for Performance Radio, but it's the Melius Performance Podcast, the all-new podcast, and this is the very first episode with our very first guest, and I'm delighted to have on my friend, the one and only Dr. Reed Real. Yes, that is his real name, Reed Real. Sounds like a DJ name, and he should be probably on the microphone, but he's not. Reed Real is the Performance Nutrition Manager at the UFC, that's the Ultimate Fighting Championship Performance Institute, and that's the one in Shanghai, China. If you are an MMA fan, a UFC fan, you may have seen the Performance Institute that is newly being built in China, in Shanghai, and Reed is one of the people that has been employed to work there. Now, I've had read in the podcast before, you can go back and listen to that episode. We're not going to get into this, the kind of the specifics of weight cutting. If you're into that, go back and listen to that previous episode. Reed has also got lots of episodes out on different podcasts about this subject and on his website, Combat Sports Nutrition. So you can head over there and see everything there uh, about actual weight cutting per se. In this episode, we really focused on fight week. Reed has been on uh, Fight Island in Abu Dhabi for about 30 days and he was in the arena when Khabib Nurmagomedov Nurmagomedov basically retired from MMA after 29 victories and probably will go down as one of the greatest fighters of all time. Reed was actually in that room at the time and worked with lots of fighters on that card and many fight cards around that. So we talk a lot about that. We also talk about the physiology of fighters. What is the optimum size to be a fighter? What type of fighter you want to be? We talk a little bit about sleep. We talk a little bit about physiology, performance, VO2 max. So if you want to geek out a little bit of the data here and find out some information, tune in and listen to this one. It goes for a little bit over an hour. I hope you enjoy this. Like I say, if you want to hear more about weight cutting, go back to the earlier episode with Reed. Other than that, let's get into this episode with Dr. Reed Rail. Yeah, yeah, just like going through it. All right. Oh, everybody, you're in for a treat today. I have the one and only Piss Man. This. <laughs> I don't know if people can see see on the video, but he's putting his hands up. We might we might put out the video as well. But I'm joined by the uh, the man that I call Pissman. He got that title at the Australian Institute of Sport from a major study that he conducted, where he collected copious amounts of piss or urine um, to analyze hydration of fires, which we'll get into in a minute. Now, if you're listening to this podcast straight off the bat, you might be like, "What is he talking about?" But it will make sense as we go on. Reed has been on the podcast before, so we welcome on Doctor. Uh, Reed Real, try saying that backwards four times. And Reed, you join us from where today? I'm uh, I'm in quarantine in in Shanghai. I just returned to China um, after nine nine months uh, abroad um, during this whole COVID situation. And uh, yeah, I, I left in January for what I thought was going to be a one week holiday in Thailand. And uh, <laughs> I left I, I left right before the the the, the COVID went worldwide. And uh, I think it was the 22nd of January and I left and then three days into my trip, um, it got a bit more serious and, and work said, don't go back just yet. And, uh, and long story short, um, one week turned into nine months or 10 months, however long it's been. And uh, I've done one and a half laps of the world. And, um, and three days ago, I returned to China. So I'm currently in, uh, in quarantine in a, 
it's in a service apartment. It's not bad. The first day I had to do um, in a government mandated hotel where the yeah. wall was about one foot from the end of my bed. And, uh, and luckily I got out of there and now I'm allowed to do home quarantine in a uh, service department. So the, now there's about four foot from the bed to, 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 to the uh, yeah, end yeah. of the so a lot better than being in a room. So um, so you uh, you left for a week, and that was like nine months ago. Um, yeah. What? Why are you in Shanghai, Ray? Tell tell people listening what your job is in Shanghai because it's quite cool your job. Yeah. So uh, for those who don't know, the the UFC um, have a performance institute in Las Vegas, which is like a sports science facility to um, increase the kind of training and rehab and nutrition knowledge of MMA practitioners in the UFC. Um, and so they have the, the, the main one in Vegas. Um, but then like a lot of these US companies, and I, and I often liken it to like the NBA, they want to get into the Chinese market. Um, and so part of UFC getting into the Chinese market and to get more viewership over here um, was to grow MMA in China and to get more Chinese fighters into the UFC. So they um, spent, I believe it was like $14 million to set up the... Uh, a performance institute in Shanghai. And so um, and so, what makes the one in Shanghai different to the one in Vegas is that the one in Vegas just provides sports science support to athletes, um, but they bring their own coaches if they want to train there. Um, it's yeah. a lot more of a transient population. Whereas the one in Shanghai, we still service any rostered fighters, but we have a full-time academy. So we have anywhere from kind of 20 to 30 um, Chinese MMA fighters that live across the road from the academy and train there full-time. Um, and so, yeah, so we get to manage these athletes um, over, over a longer time frame. And we have, so we have uh, MMA department and then also a um, performance department. And so the MMA department has coaches of all the various disciplines and the performance department has strength and conditioning, nutrition, sports science, and physical therapies. Um, and I run the sports nutrition department there. So uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a cool job for me. It's exactly what I want to be doing. Yeah, and obviously you were on before Reid and um, we spoke about your PhD work where you investigated basically safe weight cutting practices in fighters, particularly looking at water loading strategies and low residue diets, which commonly get used. And although people still talk about weight cutting, you know, and that's a big debate of itself, but really that's what you were looking on, the safe and effective um, means of doing that. So can you, for the people who haven't listened to that podcast, can you give like a, you know, like a kind of a couple of minute summary of, of, what you were looking at, what you found, and what the outcome from that was, because this kind of, this is what actually led to you getting this job, wasn't it? Really, correct. Yeah. So, um, so in brief, like the 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 title of my PhD kind of sums it up. The, the title of my thesis was um, optimizing acute weight management in Olympic combat sports, and so what that involves is just optimizing the process of weight cutting and recovery uh, post weigh-in um, in Olympic combat sports. And the inter interesting thing about Olympic combat sports. Um, you have boxing, judo, wrestling, and taekwondo, and now karate, actually. But karate wasn't um, in the Olympics when, when you and I were doing our PhDs. Um, but they all have different weigh-in regulations in terms of the time that you weigh in, um, whether, like, whether it's the day before, the morning of competition, um, and whether you need to repeat the weight-making process. So like in boxing, they weigh in every day of a multi-day competition. Um, and so this kind of enabled me to optimise and play around with the different strategies um, and think about the different strategies that may be used depending on the the um, weigh-in regulations. Um, yeah, I've just got a knock at the door. <laughs> oh, who is it? Let's see who it is. We're going to ask me my, my temperature because I have to check my temperature twice a day. All right, you go get your temperature checked there, Reid. No, 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 I already know it. Give me 30 seconds. 
Well, that was, that was great timing. If you are uh, listening and you're interested in Reed's work, you can Google Reed Real on the internet. You can find his website where he does sell a lot of resources around um, helping fighters to cut weight. You'll see lots of his presentations up there, lots of his work, um, it's up there. And prior to working at the UFC, Reed was also working at Gatorade. And then prior to that, he was at the Australian Institute of Sport. So, um, yeah, so if you want to look up Reed's work, you can do that. Now Reed is back. Reed, what was your temperature? Uh, it was um, Sanche Wudian Bar. Okay. Any Chinese <laughs> listeners? <laughs> what was that? 1,050. <laughs> 35.8, but nobody checked. So um, I'm supposed to do the auxiliary to myself and report to them. But now I just know what it's supposed to be. So I just tell them the number they want to hear. Every day. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, play the game. I've had 17 COVID tests in the past six weeks. So I think I'm good. <laughs> yeah. You missed I'm pregnant. Um, <laughs> uh, probably get cancelled for that. Um, so, yeah. So, you were looking at uh, the way of cutting in multi-day boxing and then over time. So, what was the um, what else were you looking at there in, in the kind of a summary of your PhD work? Yeah, I mean that, that that's basically it. It's um optimizing um a, acute weight management, so weight cutting and, and recovery post weigh for the different sports. And so within that, we looked at like body composition of combat sport athletes um at their peak. So like what kind of body fat percentage and what sort of fat free mass relative to your weight division um is kind of ideal or optimal. We looked at uh, the effect of weight cutting on performance or competition outcomes. Um, so so to see whether those who gain more weight were more successful in competitions. Um, and then we did the water loading study um, that, that, that you and I did where we looked at whether water loading actually enhances the, um, the fluid losses during a, a, a fluid restriction. Um, and I did a survey study looking at uh, the different weight management practices of athletes in the different sports in Australia. Um, and basically the, the only ones that were really like the most cited ones out of my, my PhD were the two review papers um, that we wrote. So one was just like a review, it's like guidelines, like a practitioner's yeah, yeah. guide for weight cutting. Um, and then also one for the, for the post-weigh-in um, recovery. And, uh, and, and, and also the water loading study is, is quite popular. Um, but, but like you alluded to before, it was really nice because now I end up working with the UFC. And, uh, and even before I started with the UFC, a lot of... Um, Kind of the they do like a fight week program for for UFC fighters at um at, at events where they have a chef prepare food for them and and a lot of what they do was kind of based on my PhD research so so it's it's really nice that I end up working mm. um for the UFC and so I don't think that many people get to you know study something in their PhD and then actually apply it in a paid role um like it's what I'm doing now is exactly what I did during yeah, my yeah. PhD so I'm very very fortunate. And what's really interesting is really that before, when you, or when you started your PhD, this this role, you know, the UFC Performance Institute, I don't think, I think it was in just in, in the early stages in Las Vegas or had just been started and the one in Shanghai certainly hadn't. So it's not like you were, you went like, oh, that's a cool job. I'll do a PhD to get into that. It was actually nearly the opposite way around. It's like what you did maybe and the connections led to those guys probably going, oh, you know what? We actually need someone like this um, because what kind of... Uh, what kind of shits me a little bit and probably even you more is that people think you know in this area of mma and obviously being a new sport um and in combat sports in general people think because they've cut wear for a long time that they know how to do it correctly and safely but it may be completely wrong and accurate and it could be just you know winging it 
And it's a bit yeah. like this in the sleep world as well. People think they know how to manage jet lag, shift work, all these things because they've been doing that and they haven't kind of died. So they think, oh, I must be really good at it. But they actually don't know how good they could be. And so it's really interesting, I think, to see these these areas like diet, nutrition, you know, sleep and recovery starting to kind of get a bit more to the forefront because they're not very, it's hard sometimes. They're kind of intangible enablers, I would call them. Because it's not like strength and conditioning where you can measure somebody and go, oh, yeah, he or she lifted X amount of weight, then Y, then Z. And then, you know, they keep, they keep going up or they had this many fights at the one. So it's really hard. But if you get it wrong, it can completely screw your performance. So it's a critical enabler, um, as I, w- I would view it. So it's really interesting and, and really promising to see lots of, you know, high level competitions or institutions start to look at these other things. Because I think in sports science, it's very heavily weighted to strength and conditioning probably 95% and then then probably nutrition and then recovery. So yeah, yeah it's really interesting to see this change in, in these organizations. Yeah, and, and certainly kind of what you just touched on there with, with like the weight cutting. Um, so like the ultimate measure is did the guy make weight? And um, and I'll just kind of give a summary of kind of the, the, the weight making efforts at uh, Fight Island where I just just was in, um, in Abu Dhabi. And it's like, you know, let's say there was 25 guys um, per card, there was more. There was like, let's say, well, it can't be twenty five because it's got to be fights. But like twenty four to thirty athletes. <laughs> One guy was fighting himself. <laughs> <laughs> Read real versus Read real. Tailored the tape, virtually identical. Reed comes out with a strong right hook, drops himself into, t- <laughs> drops himself straight away, triangle chokes himself. <laughs> um, I've angle locked myself before with the with the back. Um, um, <laughs> The uh, what was the goal with that? But but so let's just round it up. Let's say there was like thirty athletes per card and and five weeks, so it's a hundred and fifty athletes. And let's say out of those one hundred and fifty, um, one hundred and forty of them made weight. Um, and and let's say we um helped say three or four of them um make weight who wouldn't have made weight. So 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 that's a tangible number. It's like this guy wasn't going to make weight, and then he made weight. But you might say, well, you only saved four four athletes. But what the numbers don't tell you is, um, you know, how much easier you can make it for an athlete. So you can get a guy who's going to make weight, but he's going to kill himself and hate his life and go through a traumatic experience and still make weight. Um, or you can get the same guy and he makes weight, but he does it a lot easier and he doesn't have this like PTSD, this weight cutting PTSD. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of what we do is, like you said, it's like it's not direct, tangible um, objective numerical outcomes, but it's more the subjective stuff and, and, and just the overall like athlete health um, and well-being side of it. But surely read then like people like uh, Uncle Dana and uh, Jeff Nowitzki and all these guys who, who are your, you know, your leaders in that space, they must be obviously interested in terms of a monetary outcome. So for example, if you have the fight that went on last week that you got to sit in, which I'll talk about in a moment, you got to sit in the arena while you were standing in the back of the arena because I saw you on the pay-per-view. Um, but it wasn't so even at the back was quite close. I was, I was yeah. fortunate. You're at the back, but you're like quite close, right? You got to witness what happened with Khabib on the weekend versus Justin Gaethje. But if you take like two fighters like that, a mega fight. Mm. Now, if Khabib or Justin, whoever it is, doesn't really matter who it is. If one of those fighters doesn't make weight, and then they're over, it may not be. Well, it won't be a championship. The the, the belt won't be on the line. So therefore, right. that could have a tangible outcome on the monetary income because lots of people be like, oh, you know what? It's not a championship fight. I'm not paying 50, 60, $70, whatever it is to watch the pay-per-view. So pay-per-view numbers might slump because of that. 
So therefore, you know, that's why I'm saying about it's a critical enabler to, enabler to allow these fights to happen. But then, you know, it's kind of like everybody has an interest. The fighter wants to do a good weight cut. They want to perform. They want to win. And Uncle Dan is worried about the money aspect of it because that's his job. Yeah. Yeah, for, for, for sure. And um, and obviously, I can't um, discuss any individual athletes or, or get into the, the, the nitty gritty about it. But, but I will say it's like, like you said, the financial kind of implications um, again, without getting really into it, because I, I probably shouldn't, but something that I was unaware of, um, w w which is a big kind of factor, is you think about these television contracts, right? And so, like, if UFC have a deal with ESPN or whatever, it's stipulated in that contract is per year we need this number of title fights, this yep. number of opponent fights, yep. blah, 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 all this sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's, um, it, it is important. Yeah, I'm not going to ask you to get into individual weights of people or, you know, give away trade secrets. Um, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask you to do that on the podcast today. Um, like trade secrets, that's all published, but um, yeah, in, in terms of, um, yeah, names and, and athlete weights, definitely not. Um, but I suppose one of the things that was going to go there was on, um, you know, with, with these, with these different fighters and, and different things like have, have, have you or have the UFC or has the business in general said, right, since we've started kind of managing or observing the way cutting strategy, have we seen an improvement? Because there's probably two parts. Well, one is people have, you know, more of a longer term weight loss for six weeks out before a fight. If someone's like 200 pounds and they have to weigh in at 155, so they might go, right, you know, in the six weeks before the fight in the training camp, I'm going to go from 200 down to maybe 170. I get to the I get to the event on the Monday. The fights on a Saturday. I have to cut the extra fifteen pounds through water loading, low residue diet, and this acute phase, which is generally like the what we were talking about. And then you know they had to have the fight, and then they successfully sorry the weigh in, they successfully rehydrate, replenish, and have the fight, and then they're back on their own time. Since UFC have started to put some measures and metrics and support around this, have have you observed less fighters? not making weight yeah it's it's an interesting one i don't have the statistics in front of me there's um there, there's so many factors um so one was when they changed the weigh-ins from afternoon weigh-in to morning weigh-in um i believe that might have actually happened before the pi in vegas even come around but that was an interesting one because you think well if you've got greater recovery time um that's going to allow people to to cut more and, and not miss weight but actually in the beginning at least the, um, the numbers went the other way. When they yeah. changed it to give you a greater recovery time frame, uh, more people missed weight. Um, and then in terms of, um, you know, now that we've been around for a couple of years, have the numbers um, come back the other way? To be honest, I'm not 100% sure. And because there's like multiple factors involved. And so like, if you just look at the, um, like, like recently with the whole COVID thing, um, there's been a lot of like canceled fights, last-minute fight call-ups, short-notice fights, guys getting opportunities that wouldn't normally and all this sort of thing. So it's like, you know, there's a lot of confounding factors mm. um, that, 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 that might affect that number. Um, but, yeah, I, I will say, though, like something that I've noticed, and I've noticed it really acutely um, having been at Fight Island for the past five weeks, there does, and I, and I spoke with some high-level coaches um, about this, and there does seem to be a bit of a shift in the culture um, for guys not to cut as much weight. They still cut probably the same amount of weight acutely at the end, but yeah. this whole going up to 20% above your weight division in between mm -hmm. fights is starting to not, not occur as much. Like back in the day, it was 
you know, you fight three three times per year. You you after the fight, you go out and binge eat and, and party and whatever. Then you you know blow up if you're fighting at one fifty five. Like you said, maybe you get to two twenty in between fights. Yeah, or something. yeah. And then they spend their their um their fight camp essentially in fat camp, where all they're doing is worrying about their weight, starving themselves, all their you know eating chicken breast and licking lettuce um for, for the whole fight camp. Um, that does seem to be changing a bit, whereas now, which is great from the nutrition point of view, um, like you'll see a lot more fighters staying at that kind of certainly not fight weight. That's ridiculous, but staying at a comfortable weight where they could easily make weight on two to four weeks notice. Um, and, and what that enables them to do is to have more productive fight camps because they're not starving themselves during fight camp. So it's like, you know, it's just it's a lot more professional attitude. Um, towards weight management and and everything else um so so sleep sleep is definitely included in that because you know a lot of guys are interested in all these extra stuff and it's it's kind of to be expected really when you think about it um just as the money increases the participation the sport increases um uh, along with all that comes like a greater level of professionalism yeah um so it's really good to see and you know just like recently there's been a lot of fighters that have had these you know quick turnarounds there was one guy um casey kenny at uh at, at, at Fight Island, he I think it was three weeks apart. He had a fight, and then um, uh, Hamza uh, Chameev, he what was he like ten days in between fights, yeah. something like that. And you can't do that if you're you know killing yourself to make weight um, and then blowing up to a crazy. Um, well, didn't he fight across two different divisions, Ray? Didn't he fight in welterweight and middleweight? Yeah, but but yeah. If, if he had done the crazy cut for either of them, it, it still wouldn't have been possible. So yeah. um, yeah, but and and certainly if you look at all of the champions. I mean, other than Connor in years past, you know, and that's not that recent anymore. Like, I don't know any of them that do like these ridiculous cuts. Like, I think everybody's kind of the, the top level guys, I think, manage their weight better. They're professional. It's like our coach in Shanghai likes to call it the 52 week fight camp, you know, like where you're, you're, you're always training, you're always fit. Um, you know, obviously, volumes and intensities fluctuate appropriately throughout the year. Uh, but, but this, this kind of crazy fat camp instead of fight camp attitude is, it, it still exists. There's pockets of it, yeah, but I yeah. think sports heading heading away from it. It's it's interesting because there's many documented cases, like on the internet, like you know, and and fighters have well reported this themselves on podcasts or interviews about this crazy weekend. And I keep using that one fifty five example. One of the one of the fighters that comes to mind. I don't think he fights anymore. Maybe he does. Is Gleason Tebow? He used to fight at one fifty five, but he walked around at two two ten. Like and it's absolutely huge, you know. And there's a number of fighters that had done that in the past, or you spoke there about Connor. I think he walks around generally from what I've read and what I've heard is about maybe 170 to 175 and then was getting down like to 145. And, you know, it's not just about, you know, for people listening, it's not just about cutting the actual weight. There is a, like you said, read a fat free mass. So you might be, you know, 150, you want to make 155 pounds and you might be 170 but your fat-free mass might be 160. So you got to start eating away basically at muscle. you got to reduce mass because you can't go into negative body fat. And then the other thing as well is obviously a certain amount of body fat is required for health. You can't be walking around with zero body fat. Like everybody kind of walks around going, oh yeah, I need to, I'm 5% body fat. I want to be this body. Like people just want to be, you know, walking around with a 10 pack the whole time, which is not, the 10 pack doesn't equal, it might, it might be good aesthetically, but it doesn't always equal performance. And I think in the last few years where we've seen the steroid stuff come out of, you know, with Jeff Nowitzki, we've seen the drug testing increase and all that. We have we've seen a dramatic change in the shape of fighters and how they look. Um, and people can Google those people all they want. 
and see them because it's 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 very noticeable. But like you said as well, Reid, in conjunction with that, with the sport becoming more professional, there's more focus on, you know, diet, nutrition, recovery, these opportunities to have these fights. So it's really interesting to see the back end of MMA type of um, change. And we see more and more people doing research in combat sports. Like you and I, we did our PhDs in 2014, roughly to 2017. And we see a whole host of other people just coming behind us now straight away in, in MMA um, doing doing these type of studies. So do you think it's do you think it's going to get really professional really quick because the money is starting to increase? So therefore the science will increase behind it? Yeah, for, for, for sure. I mean, and it's not just like people doing PhDs and, and, and research in MMA. It's just the adoption of existing science into the MMA realm where potentially it wasn't before. And something else that I will say I have noticed, like you said, it's like the... Uh, the, the, the 52 week, um, you know, eight pack or 10 pack, um, you know, is not generally conducive to performance because people are starving themselves to get there. But the other like point to make in this discussion, um, which is, I don't know whether this is a, a sad thing or, or, or a good thing, but it's like what you'll find as the money gets there and more and more people participate in these sports, those genetic outliers will be the ones that rise to the top. Whereas in the past, um, you know, like the guys who worked hardest and, and had the best skill set in spite of their genetics were, were probably more able to, to secure championships. Whereas um, now it's like, let's say there is an advantage of having more muscle mass at a given weight division, which there very likely is. Um, however, not everybody can be super lean year round. Like, so myself, for an example, I can get down to like 8% on a DEXA, but in order to do it, I need to eat like nothing for three months um, and I can get there. But, you know, there's some athletes who put down 4,000 calories a day and maintain, like, you know, levels of 6 7% body fat without even trying because it's just set up that way. And so, obviously, people and, – and, and then even with the weight cutting, right, like, you might say that, well, 5% dehydration is a bit of an ask for most people, but that's but, but it's achievable without affecting your health, um, this sort of thing. But uh, within that, you know, if most things in biology exist, exist on a bell curve – and so there's there's the the average people that exist in the middle, and there's always these outliers that you know they can achieve incredibly lean physiques without trying and still being well fueled, and they can their body just lets go of water um, and and drops weight quicker than other people in the acute phase. Um, and so if there is advantages to being bigger um, for a given weight division, you know there's going to be certain physiologies that are set up to handle that process better. Um, and you know. Again, as the sport's more professional, there's more participation in it. You'll see more and more of those people rising to the top. You know, it's like you, you look at basketball, there's clearly an advantage to being tall. Um, and so all the tall people end up playing basketball. So, um, so you, I mean, you're up against it if you don't have the genes set up to play basketball. And it seems that way in a lot of sports, you know, um, endurance sports included in that, the, the Tour de France, thing, things like this. You know, th those guys are all genetic outliers. Um, and, and it'll, it'll probably head that way with MMA where, you know, skills is one side of it, but athleticism and, and a predisposition to the, uh, to being able to develop the traits that are important for success will, will certainly become more and more important as the years go on. So independent of skill then, Reid, whether somebody comes from, and we still have this in MMA to a certain degree because it's only about really 30 years old. Um, which is quite young still. We still have people who are like, you know, the jujitsu fire, the freestyle fire, or the kung fu fire, whatever it might be. And it might be their predominant background, but in general, you know, let's say like a Damien Maya 
probably an older school guy, a jiu-jitsu fire, but still does obviously striking, you know, and trains, but predominantly has a is a jiu-jitsu style approach, or you look like a Nick Diaz or Nate Diaz, generally much like boxing and jiu-jitsu. So independent of those type of attributes that an athlete might bring or a fighter or a prize fighter, however they want to term themselves, um, what would be if you were to kind of, you know, draw out the the, the, the perfect athlete in MMA, and obviously this is evolving, but what are you seeing as the characteristics? Is there a certain height, a certain way, you know, a certain genetic background, a certain, you know, even race, you know, yeah. whatever it is, like, you know, what, what, what would be some of those factors that you might be observing anecdotally even at the moment? Yeah, I mean, you can draw draw some conclusions from some of the literature in other combat sports and then also just kind of um, make educated guesses based on everything. Um, certainly like um i don't it's not the bigger the better but if you're not you know if you're not somewhere around kind of eight to ten percent above your weight division when you step into the cage you're probably doing yourself a disservice um and this comes into the weight cutting like you you need to uh you don't need to cut so much weight because the more weight you cut the better but this is what i believe after years of studying and, and working in it you want to cut enough weight to not give your uh, opponent a significant size advantage so i think you know if somebody's one or two kilos heavier than you it's probably no big deal but if somebody's eight kilos heavier than you it, it's, it's particularly those lighter weights yeah that, that's that's an advantage you you would rather not give up um so there's that side of it uh certainly um i think i mean it depends on your style um however like speaking to some 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 educated people and coaches in this space it does seem like striking is becoming more and more relevant whereas you know in the beginning, it's like it was everything was a mess. Then it was kind of like wrestling was the thing. Then it was like jujitsu is the thing. Then it was like wrestling is the thing. But it seems that like guys are getting so good at the um, the sort of anti wrestling and getting back up. Like man, people get back up like crazy now. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they used to get down and hold each other down, and particularly in the lighter weights, it doesn't really happen anymore. Everyone gets to their feet again, um, and so so striking. Like if you can't strike your, your heart up against it, and you, even using the examples of like Damien Meyer, like you said, you know, it's like until he learned how to strike, he he didn't have that success. And then even now, it's like, you know, he he just can't beat beat, beat the really good wrestlers. Um, but yeah, back to the striking thing. So because of the striking thing, um, a lot of coaches and and it kind of makes sense believe that uh, range, so like limb length is is very important. Um, and um you know, sorry can i just ask you to read on limb length you're talking about not just the reach of a fighter are you talking about leg reach as well yeah i mean all, 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 all of reach. It, right? yeah i mean it depends on the body you certainly don't have to be kicking people though it helps but but certainly reach um and, and i've thought about this a bit myself actually like it, it seems like as well and the thing is is that like um strength correlates with muscle mass but it's not a perfect correlation because you yeah. can get guys that aren't that big that are, you know, way stronger than would be predicted by their muscle mass. So it's like, I think if you can have that long, that that long um, body type, that's still very strong. Um, and something I've even thought about, you look at some guys have like really high hips. So they've got a small torso. Um, and, and, and I kind of feel like that enables you to be taller at a given weight. You know what I yeah. mean? Because if your torso is quite heavy, um, and you're blessed with a shorter torso, that means you can be quite tall, still have like, um, you know, and, 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 and the wide shoulders as well. Like I think like generates a lot of power. I don't know how, how true that is, but it, it seems to be the case. Like So like I a think, John Jones I'm envis envisaging now. Exactly, yeah. The, the yeah. John Jones, that, that kind of crab body where it's like the small yeah, torso, yeah. gangly arms and legs. Like 
I think that's 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 quite successful. Um, and, and then in terms of like fitness qualities, like obviously you want a high VO2 max, but that's probably not the deciding factor, but probably more like lactate threshold, you know, guys that have um, like reasonable VO2s, but um, but exceptionally high lactate thresholds is, is, is probably most advantageous. And all that stuff is trainable, um, but there's certainly genetic um, predispositions to it. I don't know with lactate threshold, the, the, the ratio, but I do believe with like VO2 max, it's largely genetically determined. It is, um, yeah. Yeah, it can be increased by I think ten to fifteen percent with training. Yeah. But you know, if you have a VO two max of fifty, you're probably not going to get past sixty, really. Yeah, but 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 the good news for that, and do you know with with lactate is is that the same thing or is that more trainable? I feel like that's more trainable. But I'm, not I'm, sure. not, I'm not too sure about lactate. But I know a VO two max it is genetically. Yeah, because in some of the tests I've done myself for my own personal VO two max, you know, I I I've got my VO two max up to seventy. And, you know, I was like, oh, like in comparison to other people, that's really high. But, you know, as a personal example, but I'm not very strong as a person, right? So I'm not very, no matter how much I try to gain muscle mass, I can go on a strength building program, hypertrophy program. I'll never get past like 82, 83 kilos. And if I do, you know, I walk around with invisible lats, you know? So, and, and, (laughs) you know, I'm never going to get really, really big. So that's, that's just the thing. But my VO2 max my endurance so like i'm thinking about archetypes of fighters you're talking about john jones for example with that vo2 max comes to mind nate diaz for example so like i I often think to myself when people say to me when people when people often ask me from people i've spoken to what's the best fighter to be what's the best you know what's the best way to train i'm like well it depends on yourself it depends on like you're saying with that body type it depends on the type of fighter you want to be do you want to be like a Nate Diaz where you just wear the person down over time and then the later rounds you're going to do something or do you want to be like a McGregor where you're going to come out and just crack someone straight away so it depends on the type of fighter you want to be number one it depends then I think on your which is probably influenced by your genetic disposition or where you are so um I think it's really interesting you know that we look at these factors and then determine what's going to be the the outcome because like in jiu-jitsu as well you're talking about you know, a long, um, the other, the other thing in jiu-jitsu I've come, kind of come to is like the Craig Jones type of body shape looks like it's optimal for jiu-jitsu, about 6'2", 85 to 90 kilos, and lots of those type of style of guys or that size at our gym do really well as well. Yeah. They can beat smaller guys and bigger guys in that kind of optimal weight range. So I think it's interesting some of these factors you're saying and how they will determine. Yeah, jiu-jitsu is a funny one because for every, you know, whenever you get a Craig Jones being super successful, you think that's the way that you need to be. But then you'll get like the shorter, stockier types, you know, a Marcelo Garcia or even like a you know, Galvao or something like this. And, and I think jiu-jitsu is really beautiful because you can really, um, you know, there's a point where the reach, I mean, it, it is irrelevant for, for a start, but where, where you can kind of neutralize the long lever um, advantages by kind of playing a bit tighter and sometimes having those longer levers actually um, get, get, gets in the way for some guys. But um yeah, it's 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 certainly interesting, and and then with the MMA, um, like like back on the VO2 max thing, like yeah, I, I definitely think like lactate threshold or lactate threshold relative to VO2 max is very important because even if you look at the research, looking at even like high level boxers, um, and definitely judo and, and and wrestling athletes, like they're not crazy high, you know, they're like high fifties maybe yeah, for the yeah, best. Yeah. Of the world. Um, and you know that that's not particularly high, but I mean, if they're like if they if they've got a very high lactate threshold and they can operate you know, going very hard at close to the VO2 ceiling for a long period of time, that's obviously advantageous. And then of course, strength and, um, and, uh, and, and, and mental will. Mm. And that all kind of plays in then, like, you know, some people like Rogan would often call for, you know, the old pride rules of like having 
you know, no rounds or not having a round for like 20 minutes, which I think then that would change the dynamic of the fight, but also change the way people train. Because if I roll with somebody and the bell goes after five minutes, I'm always like, oh, just keep rolling. And then sometimes that'll become three rounds because I know by the third round with my ability to endure that I'll, I'll, that's my biggest advantage. So people go, okay, I'll keep going. But little, well, I'm giving up my secret here now. And then I try and catch them then. So if it's to try and over, overcome the strength. So I think when, if the, if the rules of the fight change and maybe, or the, the rounds would change, which I don't think they will, but if they did, that would then start changing the whole, you know, outcome of, of, the, of how fighters should train and how they should be. So it's really interesting because everybody's always looking and Joe Rogan says that a lot of times on his podcast, other people ask it as well. People want this kind of elixir, this perfect pathway of like, how do I cut where? How do I cut where the week before? How do I train? How do I fight? And then they look at people like you said, like Craig Jones, Khabib, whatever it might be, Machida years ago. Oh, we all should do karate. Khabib now, everybody should do wrestling. You know, whatever it might be, whatever's the flavor of the month, people think that's the way to train. How do I train in fight camp? Do I lift weights? Do I not lift weights? Do I work on striking? Do I learn skills? Do I lose fat? Do I gain muscle? Like, it's just so many factors. And, and, and to my knowledge, and I'm interested to hear what you think on this raid, I don't think there is one true path, is there, to success? No, I think with, with a lot of things in... um in nutrition and physiology and about sleep and and even in life i don't believe there's with most things there's not one right way to do it but there are as many of wrong ways (laughs) yeah 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 like like people say how should i train it's like should i do strength and power power than strength should i do splits should i do this it's like yeah they can all work um you probably shouldn't you know hit yourself in the head with a brick during training camp, like like there's some things you shouldn't do, um, but there's probably many things that you could do that 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 are equally successful. Yeah, that's I like that. Yeah, I just making a note here. I like that many there's many bad ways. Yeah, and don't hit yourself in the head with a brick. Okay, but is 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 is, is, is it okay? Is wood okay? Can I hit myself with wood? Well, 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 well you know what? Um, I saw Tony Ferguson do that. Didn't go down, sure. Yeah, I mean, he's not bad. So. Maybe you should, but this brings <laughs> my point. Um, the reason why I said yourself in the head with a brick, I remember um, a mutual friend of ours, Israel Halprin. Oh um, yeah, Israel. Yeah. To him about this stuff one day, and he's uh, <laughs> he goes, everyone wants to look at the way these guys train and say that's the way you should train. He's like, that's that's good, but it's not 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 the best way. He's like, like you shouldn't just look at let's say George Saint Pierre. You shouldn't just say, well, whatever George Saint Pierre does, I should do because George Saint Pierre might be banging his head against a brick wall. It doesn't mean that. <laughs> you know what i mean like and particularly with like these top athletes in many sports maybe also like endurance sports where it's largely physiologically dependent and there's a pretty clear way about how to train but certainly skill-based sports um and fighting and, and some of the team sports you know a lot of these athletes are successful despite what they do yeah, not yeah. because of what they do and, yeah, and yeah. interesting yeah like you look at people like john jones and obviously stuff like him about him has been all in the media and you often think or even McGregor, you go, wow, if they just really like, you know, cleaned up their act outside and concentrated, did what they did. But maybe being, you know, wild motherfuckers is what makes them so good inside there and so creative. So like, you know, what's good and what's bad? It's, it's I find it really interesting. Like, and I, I find the whole dynamic of, of, of fights really interesting, what to do outside of the cage, what to do in training, the whole way. And it's not even about a kind of a, obsession because they're famous i just find all the different variables and all the different things coming to it like it's it is the most random set of events and things you can do to get an outcome and i just 
I just think it's really fascinating watching it. But that's I find that more interesting in sports than I do about the outcome. It's like when I watch Formula One. I love all the variables of Formula One as well. I'm going to have mm-hmm. a guy on the podcast who actually writes a Formula One blog. He's a mathematician from Monash University in Melbourne. He's coming on in a few weeks. And it's just really fascinating that all these variables to get an outcome. And you can be all the pundits you want on the couch sitting there, drinking your yeah. beer, rubbing your guts and going, oh, this is going to happen. That's going to happen. Why doesn't he get up off the ground? Why isn't he hitting? But there's so many factors that goes into it. Yeah, there's so, what's the word? There, there's so many degrees of freedom when it comes yeah. to fighting. For sure, MMA has got to be the most complex and hardest sport yeah. you can do. Like, um, yeah, it's 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 just mind blowing. And um, and and like you said, all the stuff that goes into it, and then the psychology on the day. Like, the psychology is so important. And uh, I mean, you look at like Khabib and um and Justin, like, like, could, could that's almost like a perfect performance from Khabib. Huh? Like oh, it was flawless. Was just, it was so it good was to watch. Yeah, amazing. And like, and seeing him that week, like, um, and and we all seen him at the Wayne's when, when they broadcast the Wayne's, like, not, not in great shape. And you know, with his dad passing, and um, and uh, and and all the pressure being in Abu Dhabi, like they love him there in the Middle East. You know, obviously the um the, the Islam connection, like they they love him. There's uh at the W Hotel where we were at, like the GM there is just like an absolute fanboy. And um, so, like, the, the pressure that was on his shoulders. Um, and then when he come out to the cage, he was, like, you know, not quite himself. It, he seemed, like, stressed and everything. And, and then he just went after it. It's like he was desperate to just get that fight over with. And he just hunted him down like he didn't even respect him at all. And, um, and, and then, like, obviously got him down in the first round and, and kind of didn't have enough time to finish. But then when he finally got him, got him in the second one, he, like, shot the double and turned the corner and dragged him to the mat. And in the half a second it took him to fall for his ass to hit the ground, he had already jumped up and took his back. And then before they hit the ground, he transitioned to the mount. And it was just like, man, what, what a performance. And like, it made Justin look like he doesn't know what he's doing, you know? Like, and Justin's like one of the scariest dudes in the world. Like, what do they say? He's like the, the most violent guy, the most violent sport yeah. or whatever. And um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was just beautiful. Like, man, it was good. And it was like sporting history, you know? Yeah, so you were you were in that room, Reid, on the day. And we'll start with, well, actually, I wanted to talk about Fire Island, so we'll jump to that because you just described that. You know, you were sitting in there. Khabib, for those people who don't know, is, well, you'd have to say now he's the greatest MMA fighter that ever walked the planet. 29 and all, 29 wins, no defeats. Now, in boxing, that's quite common. From what I know about boxing, I'm not a boxing like guru, but in MMA, that is nearly, it's virtually impossible to do it. And you can argue the toss about who he fought and who he didn't fight, but 29 wins, I think 13 in the UFC, if I'm correct. You know, number of fights, championship fights, five rounds, and then he goes in and he does that and he retires after his dad dying earlier this year from complications from COVID. He gets in the ring, he does that performance like you described, absolutely awesome to watch as a, as a grappler myself and a, a grappling fan predominantly. It's awesome to see grappling, you know, kind of, well, the combo of striking initially, like you said earlier on, striking and then using his grappling to do that to Khabib. But then that whole thing that occurred after the fight with the interview, that was quite emotional. Like, you know, I, I, I won't lie, man. I was sitting on the couch watching that. I was like getting nearly tears in my eyes because you could see the emotion come true. Was that emotion evident in the room when you were standing there watching him make that speech? It it was, but you know what was what was 
weird about that. We were seated in, in a particular area and then um, and we were fortunate enough. We didn't get to go to the other to, to the other events while we were there um, because they don't let staff go to every event um, and particularly there with the safe zone and, and whatnot and limited seating and everything. But we were fortunate enough to, to go to that one. And um, and we, we were seated in a um, in a really nice area where we had um, good access to the cage and could see everything. I'm just going to turn my WeChat off. You can hear it going crazy. Um, log out of WeChat. That should stop the um, the sounds. And so we were seated in a really good area, like like straight on with the cage, different to where you seen me on the video. Yeah. And then what happened was for it was probably the second last fight, maybe the Whitaker fight, or maybe it was just the Khabib fight. We got asked to move because some VIPs came, and so then we kind of got pushed in the corner, and we could see fantastic. And you can obviously see the screen, but for some reason, the acoustics were bad in that corner. Uh. And so we couldn't exactly hear what was going on during the interview. And, um, and we could just hear last fight UFC, last fight UFC, my father, my father, last fight UFC and, and all this. And we kind of like, it took us a while to piece it together. And then, you know, people were checking their phones to see the news that was coming through. And um, it, it was certainly very, very weird. Um, but, but we didn't like like uh, when I watched like I I had more of an emotional reaction when I finally watched the interview um, back on Instagram or whatever. Um, so, so to answer your question, it's like we didn't pick up on the emotion straight away um, when we were in the room. But but we were fortunate enough to um, later that night go back to the hotel and um, and we were there when Khabib and his team walked in and there was like a welcoming you know applause and everything from the hotel staff and. Khabib, before he um, went back to his room and f flew back to Dubai in a helicopter, he, um, he, he kind of gave a bit of a speech to everyone about how you need to work hard in life to get what you want and, and all of this sort of stuff. And, and so that was quite emotional. And, 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 and the whole thing, just being there as part of it, was um, I, was, I was very, very fortunate. It's like, oh, yeah. that's, but, you know, in, when, when you're 80 years old, you'll be like, you know, it's like maybe it's not Ali level, but it's certainly Tyson level. Um, in, in terms of fighting greats. Um, maybe Khabib doesn't have the wider cultural kind of significance that Ali does, but, you know, he's certainly well-loved and, and respected. Yeah, it's quite, um, it's quite crazy. Man. Quite, I, I was, I was, it was great to see on the, on the pay-per-view last week. And I was, I was, part of me was like, fucking right, so jealous, like, I'd love to be there. And then all, the other part of me was like, that's awesome for you. Because I know, you know, I've been, I've been with you at AIS when you were doing your PhD and running studies and, you know, we ran studies parallel, then we worked on a study together. And I've seen you run around, you know, at four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night. And to see all that hard work pay off and to see you in that position, you know, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was great to see that, to, for you to be a part of that. I think it was well-deserved, you know, um, not that I'm you like know, your dad, not that I'm like your dad and I'm proud of you, but I'm proud of you, son. <laughs> <laughs> brutal was that five weeks at Fight Island. I didn't have a day off the whole time and, um, and it was similar I would say slightly less stress than that study that we did, but it was similar. It was that all day around the clock. Um, and, you know, it, it's that thing where normally there's, you do it for five days and there's light at the end of the tunnel, but the light at the end of this tunnel was 35 days away. And um, it was, it was, it was tough. It was, um, I was saying to someone this morning on, on another call, like when it was all over and uh, cause I didn't fly back to China until late Sunday night, Monday morning, everyone else went back to Vegas early that afternoon. And when the last bus took all the other staff to the um, to the airport, and I was kind of like, there was only a handful of us left at the hotel, and it was like it was like a bomb had gone off, and I was standing in a crater um, yeah, of yeah. afterwards. And and I and I went to the gym and just walked on the treadmill 
and stared out into the night sky. And I, it's like I had PTSD. It was like, oh my God, it's over, you know? But still, no, like, um, like that's st- like I think those type of events, like that's the uh, yes that we keep referring to because whilst they are crazy, you know, they are quite they are quite shaping. I think of your of your knowledge and they're quite shaping of you know who you are. Um, can you give us a kind of a quick rundown of a typical fight week on 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 Fight Island? Like, and for those people who don't know, Fight Island is a place in Abu Dhabi. It's Yaz Island where they have the Formula One. So it's like a little island within Abu Dhabi and they basically isolate this island just for UFC people and control access in and out with COVID testing and so on. And so hence they had this for a number of weeks. Reed was um, sequestered there <laughs> uh, against his own against his own free will onto this to help all the fighters. So can you give us like a rough outline regardless of the fight that took place, what you would do throughout yeah. the week with the fighters? Yes. Yeah, so, so, so basically, like you said, it's a... Um... I mean, use the term island loosely, but it's it's a chunk of sand that's like a couple of hundred meters off off the main kind of um, landmass. And um, and interestingly, it's like man, they've got some money over there, don't they? It's like where we were staying was a W hotel on top of a yacht marina with an F one track going around yeah, it. Yeah. And it's just like it's money on top of money on top of money. And um, but but yeah, and and so within this island complex, there's also like three other hotels. There's a couple of restaurants. Um, and there's a golf course and a beach. Um, and then they cordoned it all off and made it a, and, and Ferrari world is there as well. It's like a Ferrari theme park or something. I, I don't know, we couldn't go there, but um, so, so they, they cordoned off this whole island and um, as a safe zone to make it, you know, try to make it COVID free. Um, and what actually happened was to enable us, because when you're flying fighters in from all around the world and, you know, generally the, um, the quarantine periods everywhere is 14 days. Um, but obviously that wasn't gonna work when you've got, you know, over a thousand people coming in and out. Um, and so to enable us to do a 48 hour quarantine only, um, there was other staff, local staff in Abu Dhabi as well as UFC staff arrived two weeks prior. So they did a 14 day quarantine. So the Abu Dhabi government would let them, you know, then go about their business. And then they set up the safe zone for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the safe zone was set up in a way so that everyone had to do a COVID test before they left their home country. And then as soon as you arrived, you would go into, um, you would get a COVID test, go into your your accommodation, and then 48 hours in there with COVID testing each day. So within the first, you know, three days, you've done three COVID tests in addition to the one you did in your home country. Um, and so if you passed all of them, then you were allowed to, you know, mix throughout the hotel and, and throughout the island. Um, and everybody had to do this. Um, and uh, where else was that? And, and then, but even within that, they tried to implement social distancing. Um, everyone was still wearing masks, despite the fact that um, everyone had already done copious amounts of COVID tests. Um, and, and, and so that, that, that was kind of how the safe zone and everything was set up. Um, and then in terms of like our interaction with the fighters and whatnot. So um, because fighters come from all over the world, um, safe zone, limited access to everything. There was no supermarkets, um, you know, no convenience stores. So we were tasked with the job of providing all the food for the athletes. And so the, the W Hotel had um, had some restaurants and like a big breakfast buffet, which thank God was open until 1 p.m. every day. Fantastic <laughs> buffet, it's, it's one of the best I've, I've had. And, uh, and, but then they had restaurants and, and, and so, you know, a lot of fighters are very pedantic about their food as they need to be. Um, and so to take the stress off them, they sent um, UFC dietitians. So for the first two weeks, it was me and my, uh, my colleague from Vegas, um, Charles, um, Charles Stoll, 
who's a dietitian, um, grew up in Hong Kong and moved to the US and did his studies and um, is a professional Muay Thai fighter himself um, and also a dietitian um, who, who works with the fighters in the US. And so we were there for two weeks and then Charles went back to Vegas and then I did the remaining three weeks by myself. Um, and so, and they also sent some chefs. So people might've seen or heard of like the trifecta meal prep um, service yep. that providers and so they send the, the chefs from trifecta we had two chefs for four weeks and, and one chef for the last week um and so they were there as well and so we had to interact with the fighters collect information about where their weight's at food preferences allergies blah 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 all this sort of stuff and then communicate with the chefs to cook the appropriate food to help these guys bring their weight down um but there's just so many logistical challenges so like number one when every fighter arrives they um they're in quarantine for 48 hours so their training is limited um, access to food is is limited or yeah is, is limited or restricted and so you know trying to navigate all of these logistical challenges we we want to contact the fighters early find out whether they're high, high priority whether we need to start cooking for them straight away um, when the fighters were in quarantine we coordinate with the hotel to have a quarantine menu so that the fighters got a um you know a menu in line with um, somebody who needs to make weight um, and then a lot of the fighters didn't get released until the tuesday of fight week which is check-in day, and then they're making weight three days later. Um, and some of the fighters we didn't we didn't have contacts for, or they didn't speak English. Um, so so that's quite difficult in itself. So there's a lot of you know um, um, puzzle solving, trying to find managers and, and coaches and translators and all of this sort of stuff. Um, that that's one side of it. And then some fighters, for whatever reason, you can imagine just the sheer numbers. There's going to be things that go wrong. Um, you know, some fighters, there was one guy who didn't get out of quarantine until the Thursday night for a Friday morning weigh-in. Um, and, and so that was very difficult um, and didn't speak English either. And, uh, and, and so, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a real challenge for the fighters to make weight when everything's shaken up like that. Um, and, and so, yeah, we, we then coordinate with that, with the chefs to, to make that stuff happen. The hotel staff were absolutely fantastic. Um, something else for the first four events, which was difficult, was the, the events were not on local time. They were on US time. Yeah, yeah. That meant the fights took place local time anywhere from 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 a.m. in the morning. Um, and so because of that, um, Ian, you, you, you'll start to get horny over this stuff, but, but they had to really think about their sleep and, and how they were going to change their sleep schedules and their, their, their training to suit the, the obscure fight times. And because of that, you've got fighters that are, you know, sleeping throughout the day, awake and training um, at night or in the early mornings. But of course, you've got fighters who don't really give a shit about any of that. And they just keep doing their normal thing and think they're going to yeah. wake up an hour before they fight and fight. And, and then you've got people in between that try and slip their, shift their sleep schedule, but don't quite get it right. And so because of that, and, and there were big cards, you know, there were like 28 fighters on some cards. Um, and because of that, you, you literally had people wanting to eat, wanting to talk to you, wanting to train and wanting advice at every single hour of the day. Um, and, and so, you know, it's like every night I would try and get sleep. Maybe I'll get six hours sleep at the most. And then I would wake up to 400 messages the next day. Of course, I'm exaggerating, but, you know, 40 messages or whatever the next day, every time I'd wake up um, because you just obviously can't stay awake 24 hours a day um, or not for very long. And, and so, and so the, the hotel staff, you know, helped us coordinate some of the meal deliveries at, at all hours um, and helped us with stupid fighter requests of dumb foods that they want. You know, mm -hmm. some guy needs his 86 gram chicken leg with only half the fat on it or something dumb like this. Like they're, they're very superstitious. And, and so the, the hotel staff were really great with that. 
the the weigh-ins were not at the hotel but at the arena um so then we had to coordinate taking all the recovery supplies the the rehydration stuff to the arena to meet the fighters um and then also coordinating with the with the hotel staff again for the for the fight day feedings um because again it's like when they're fighting at 3 a.m hotel restaurants aren't open at that time and and things like this so yeah, but basically I was the in between the fighters and the chef um, to make sure that they were getting what they want. Um, but, but I often joke like at least 50% of my job is to hold the fighters' hands and pat them on the back of the hand and say everything will be all right. Yeah, yeah. Because you know a lot of it is actually not that complicated, but they're freaking out. They're in a different environment. Some of them it's their debut UFC fight, all this sort of stuff. So there's, there's a lot of psychology and placebo effect going on. Yeah, it's very interesting. So, Reid, when you talk about, um, I had a couple of emails from people on Fight Island about sleep stuff. When you talk about uh, sleep and the variation, you've obviously got people flying in from different locations, like you said. So, it's going to be jet lag. And it's obviously an area that I, I, I investigate and write a bit on. So, you're going to have jet lag. You're going to have people then fighting at different times. So, you're going to have what we call social jet lag or circadian misalignment within that there. Plus, you're going to have people then, you know, in recovery mode, maybe slightly because they've trained really hard and during the week of the fight, they're focused on cutting weight. So when normally when people take the, the foot off the gas, so to speak, all the injuries start to appear, you know, and then they have the sleep disruption and fragmentation and so on. So you get this kind of perfect storm of just sleep on its own. How, how or do, do you in the UFC manage or support people around the sleep cycles and sleep schedules and sleep adaptation to, for performance? Does that happen? Yeah, we, um, I mean, particularly with this Fight Island event, we had a um, kind of just a general portfolio of uh, education material that we would hand out to fighters. Um, and, and some of that was concerning the the, the sleep. Um, and I'd like to hear your thoughts about it. I know like when I spoke to Shona in the past, there's, you know, discussions around, um, you know, the best way to slip, shift your sleep schedule. And it's not always intuitive. It's not just like get on yeah. local there's strategies to do it. Um, but I mean, the population we're working with, some of them aren't that bright. And, uh, you know, the what, what we decided on was just to give them guidelines around, number one, training at the time they're going to be fighting. That's like first and foremost. And then planning your sleep around that. So just to try and like not get on local time, but get on fight time as soon yeah. as possible. And again, some of them are only arriving, um, you know, on the Monday for a and, and sometimes even later on a, on a Tuesday for a um, Sunday morning fight. And so we just had like a bit of a timetable set up for him with Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, et cetera. And then here's your fight time, train at that time each week, and then try and get your, you know, eight to 10 hours sleep um, around that. And, and, and there's, you know, the, the messaging that we ended up giving them was like, there's kind of two ways to do it, right? Let's say you're fighting at 2 a.m. in the morning, well, actually, let's just say 3 a.m. just to make it a little bit more nicer for my example. Um, if they're fighting at 3 a.m. in the morning, you can either replicate it so it's a night fight like you would normally fight, like if most people fight on Saturday night, um, or you could make it so your sleep schedule is more in line with what might be like a, a morning training session. So let's say if you get up three hours before you train and you're going to fight at 3 a.m., then we would say you want to be getting up at midnight um, having you or something to eat and then training at 3 a.m. So it's similar to, you know, maybe on a Saturday morning, you you get up at, at, at 8 a.m. And, and train at 11, something like that. Or if it's the other way around where it's like you're going to replicate it more like a night a night session, then obviously you're, um, you know, you, you work backwards from there. Maybe they get up at what, like uh, maybe it's going to be like 12 hours. So maybe it's like you get up at 
one or two in the afternoon and you're staying awake doing a light session in the afternoon and then doing your main session um, at 3 a.m. and then going to sleep after that session. Um, so that's kind of how we, we, we recommended that. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. And then in terms of some strategies around getting sleep, obviously we were like, look, caffeine's gonna help you keep awake. Um, cut caffeine, you know, six to eight hours before your bedtime. Um, some melatonin before bed is definitely not gonna hurt. Um, and we also gave them information about like some um, um, sympathetic and parasympathetic breathing techniques um, to try and, you know, um, get them ready for bed or um, help them wake up uh, after naps and things like this. Um, how much was it adopted? It's hard to say, you know. Yeah. Some people are like to, to the our points earlier about the professionalism. Some people love that stuff, you know, and some people literally don't care. Um, and and it was very interesting. Like maybe fifty percent of guys rock up with zero thought around it. Like they just they're just like, sweet, I'm in the UFC. Yeah, yeah. And, they, and then they're like, I'm like, so what are you going to do with your training? They're like, oh, we haven't decided yet. And I'm like, all right, well, this is what time you're fighting. They're like, yeah, I don't normally like to train that. Maybe I'll just like train normal and then like sleep and get up and, and fight. And I'm like, well, yeah, you could try that. Um, I don't know if I will be doing it. But 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 the, but like we said with fighting, there's so many um, degrees of freedom, you know, like I won't say who it was, but one guy's like, he's like, look, I don't care about that shit. I'm just going to fight. He's like, if somebody wakes you up at 3 a.m. in your house and wants to rob you, what are you going to do? You're going to fight him. He's like, I'll be fine. And the guy went out and had a stellar performance and, and won his fight. So you yeah. know, what I mean? it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? The way it every, all... every, you're right. Everybody is different. Yeah. But to, to answer your question, Reed, I think the answer to that, all the things you're, all the things you've discussed are not wrong, yeah. but it's going to depend on a number of factors. So for people, when I advise on something like this, I break it into four phases. You got preparation, so that's in the weeks before you fly. So what's what's actually happening with your sleep? Because if we don't know how you sleep and you know, we need to look at things like your potential prevalence of sleep disorders, what time you generally go to bed and get up in the morning, you know, when you generally train, what's the kind of, you know, what's really happening in your life. So we'd look at that first to create a baseline. Then we would do um we would do a travel plan. And that would be based upon where you are and where you're com where you're coming from. It also depends on the direction of travel, east versus west. How you know? So how many time zones you're going to cross? When the time of the time of the flight is? All these variables come into it. But again, it's all been derived back from the time of the fight or the time of the competition or for executives, the time of the meeting. That's our anchor point that we have to come back on. So as much as you can filter that back into into the into the camp the better it's going to be because you might slowly start adapting and and changing that um probably one of the best examples i've seen would be well, i think mcgregor before maybe for aldo maybe for two or three weeks he was out in vegas enough time to get over the jet lag was slowly changing his you know his training times to be around midnight when the fight was going to happen so you'd have that slow adaptation obviously that's not going to be the case for fight island but really it would look at four place four stages preparation travel and we do some scientific modeling to work out the best optimization of the travel and you know sort of adaptation then we move into adaptation phase the week of the fight and then we look at recovery as well because if fighters want to do two three four fights back to back whatever it might be we have to look at that recovery cycle as well or if the you know fighters get on the mic and go hey, i'm gonna be back in the gym on monday i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do that well how do we get you recovered back into that for potentially the next one so there's four things we look at and the other thing i'd say as well Reed, is that 
I'd be very cautious about recommending melatonin because if somebody's got what we call a circadian rhythm disorder, melatonin may make that worse. So the timing and the dose of melatonin has to be, um, is, is crucial. We just published a review, which I'll put in the show notes because it's open access, looking at travel and jet lag in athletes. There is very little evidence on interventions and virtually nothing on sleeping tablets and melatonin. So really, any inference that we're making is from the general public. It's not athlete specific. And secondly, you have to take in the, the caveat that if someone's got a sleep disorder, you could be making it worse. Because some people take melatonin and it screws around with them as well and it affects other, other factors as well. So they're all kind of things that would need to be looked at, you know, for individuals, um, a bit like the diet and nutrition. I'm not saying that UFC has to have a sleep and performance person, but I think, you know, it would be something that you could improve on given those factors. It definitely, yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting the stuff with melatonin because I have heard that in the past and, and you know, read a little that the, 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 the timing of it is very important mm. in, in regards to like where you're coming from, where you're going to. And also something with body temperature, right? Isn't it like your temperature dips at a certain time yeah. and there's a certain time you take it. But anecdotally, it's interesting because I've never really heard, um, I would say I've heard once or twice people say like, oh, maybe I wake up feeling a bit groggy. But more often than not, probably, you know, over 90% of my interactions and discussions around melatonin with people, and again, completely anecdotal. So just cut this out the podcast if you want. <laughs> um, like it's either a positive or nothing they're just yeah, like yeah. do anything for me or they're like man i love that shit yeah and sometimes it's a placebo effect it's the, the thing of taking a tablet you know and i'd love to run a few controlled trials on this as well but you know funding another one right like so many confounding factors like oh. do you even run a good intervention study yeah it's very difficult Reid, i'm going to jump into some fun questions here because people are going to ask about this right okay. so when you're on fight island who was the favorite? Who was your favorite fighter you got to deal with? Who who made you laugh the most? Who was the most kind of, you know, who'd you walk away and go, oh, that guy was really good. Who was that? Male or female? There's a few really good, but if you're talking about funny, it's uh, Tai Tuivasa, and uh, and check out his Instagram. <laughs> tai Tuivasa. Who 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 else will be a notable notable mention from international? Ah. Uh who who is a pleasure to work with? You know what I was a, a big fan of was the fact that there was so many um kind of last minute fight call-ups and, and and people giving opportunities that maybe wouldn't have in the past. It was really good to see a lot of people from more obscure countries that you don't normally think of. Like Kazakhstan. Yeah, but <laughs> not, not even Kazakhstan, but, you know, there's a lot of, like, European guys, um, you know, a few Swedish guys and a couple of Georgians and, you know, some of these, these countries that traditionally have um, strong combat sports but not MMA and UFC. Like, UFCs, I think it's like, well, definitely USA is the number one, then I believe Brazil, then Russia. Um, and so anytime you get guys outside of that, it's, um, you know, it, it's interesting, but there's, it really shows that MMA is developing all over the world. And, and I think in the next 10 years, you'll see a lot more people coming out of these other countries. Um, yeah. And of course the Australian guys and the Kiwi guys are always a laugh. It, it reminds me of living in Australia again. I think I heard more C bombs from um, Whitaker and Ty's camp than I've heard. In the <laughs> yeah. If you don't know what a C-bomb is, hang around with me for a few days. Um, who, who surprised you? Who surprised you the most, Reid, in the in the thirty days of the of the of the whole kind of you know on the back that I asked you about your favorite fire, but that you came across and made you laugh the most. But who surprised you the most when you met them? Who was like, wow, they're really different than what you taught in yourself? And I'm not saying they have to be you thought they were bad and you thought they were good, but yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean. Like, who who surprised you when you met them? How different they were? Hmm. 
Good question. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That, that, that's a tough one. I'll come back to that one in a second. I'm going to ask you a sort of question. Have you met yeah. Uncle Dana? Have you spoke to Dana? Is he like what he's really like? I um I, I can't divulge too much, but but I actually did um say hello to him like the the day before that I left, and I actually just um pulled him up and said um look I know you probably get a lot of people pulling you up wanting to chat to you, but I just wanted to thank you actually for um supporting us during the the, the COVID shit because we were outside of China for for months on end and yeah and paid and everything and um and definitely not doing the same volume of work so so yeah I did just thank him and he said thanks it means a lot and I was fond of it yeah. That's, that's, that's good to know. I, and then I suppose on that, then, Reid, obviously you're still there. So how would you describe the culture of working within the UFC? Um, it's within the PI. It's like, you know, people are super passionate about, I mean, but this is always with sports science, right? People are super yeah. passionate about their job. It's everything um, you bend over backwards to do for the fighters and the athletes um, and, and all the colleagues, particularly in Shanghai, um, we, we, we have a blast because it's like we work with um, there's what is there three Australians, two British guys, a Kiwi and, and, a, and a German. And um, again, there's a lot of sea bombs getting around. So and, sim uh, similar, similar cultural backgrounds, like, you know, in terms of humor. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. It's, a, it's a laugh. And then we obviously have the Chinese staff as well. So, um, yeah, it, it's a really positive work environment. The hours are crazy and we work hard, but we have fun. That's good. So um, I've obviously been checking out some of your Instagram lately on Fight Island. You've been posting a few interesting pictures. There was one picture of you, um, and I recognized in the picture there was Big Nog, Nagera, Benson Henderson, Michael Chiesa, yeah. your ugly mug in the corner, a few others in there as well. So yeah. who, what was that, just like a, an impromptu grappling session that you all had? How yeah, did that got, come up? Yeah, we got to roll, and it was interesting because um, I actually thought that, I'm like, man, I bet I won't be able to roll there because of um, COVID and that. And, uh, and so I, I was preparing myself to not actually roll when I was there, but um, we, we did get a few sessions in and normally they were in like, um, so each athlete had a room that they sleep in and then another room next to it as their training room, which yeah. it was literally a two by two meter mat space. And we would get like three, two or three pairs rolling. You're banging into furniture and stuff while you're rolling. <laughs> but, but that night on the, on the, the photo that you've seen, there was actually on our floor six, it was uh, the sixth floor. Everyone put their mats out into the hallway. So we had like a full like class going on in the hallway because it was like like a part in the hallway where it kind of opened up quite yeah, wide yeah. Near, near the lifts and stuff. So um, yeah, yeah, that, 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 that was a bit of fun. And, uh, and, and, and I wasn't the worst guy. I was almost the worst, but, but not the worst. So um, I, I kind of held my own with, with, with some of them. And yeah, big nog, what, a, what, a, um, what an experience like. People say the word legend a lot, but uh, talk talk about a legend, right? Like, man, he's um, yeah, it was it was cool. He strikes me as a very kind of you know from watching him on the Ultimate Fighter and TV and whatever. He strikes me as a very kind, funny, yes. funny yeah. guy. Is he is he really like that? Because he he strikes me as that like good energy. Yeah, he is. Yeah, good energy. He's just yeah. um, yeah, he's a really nice guy. He gave me a gi, and uh, because like there was one of the Brazilian fighters that was freaking out about making weight and stuff and. This guy had never worked with the PI before and through, through a mutual contact, um, um, you know, I got put onto this guy and this guy was, I was kind of suggesting he do some things that he's not used to and uh, kind of, you know, he had a very old school Brazilian um, kind of mindset around weight cutting and I suggested that we do some different stuff and he wasn't convinced and so we got big nog to um, to word him up and say, you know, tr trust this guy, do, do, do what, I'm, what I'm saying and this guy had an easier weight cut. And um and was very thankful afterwards and then um and then Big Nog 
um, presented me with a gi, which was cool. So I was like a team Nagara gi and, and gave me a belt to go with it as well. So, so, so that was quite cool. And yeah, Big Nog is just a, a, a lovely guy and, 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 and really good energy. That's awesome, and man. Yeah. It was about like 85 Instagram stories per day. I think somebody counted on one of them. Like he loves it. He's got like millions of followers between Twitter and, and Instagram yeah, and all this yeah. And he's just walking around that whole the whole time taking <laughs> asking you to repeat what you said and stuff like that. So you got to roll with all those guys and you were saying like you weren't you weren't the worst in the room. So if anybody if anybody knows Reed or well, if you don't know Reed, Reed's got a black belt in jiu-jitsu and has it for quite a while. And Reed, you're not the smallest of guys, you're pretty you're pretty solid, like you're not you're not like sixty kilos and five foot two, you're what, six six one, ninety-five kilos or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That okay. that I'm a little bit shorter and a little bit fatter, but yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> He's five foot two and one thirty. <laughs> I was off by a number of degrees of freedom there, Reid. <laughs> Seven standard deviations from the mean. Um, oh, that's a significant, significant. Yeah. Figure. Well, hey, it was an average joke. Um, <laughs> but, but when you roll with those guys, like, and even though you're not obviously not all fighting, is it? Uh, are they going crazy? Are they just like? <laughs> did it go on mental or did it actually relax and have a bit of fun? Uh, it was nobody who was fighting rolled. Yeah. Um, it was just like the, the teammates and the coaches and stuff. Big Nog actually went went after it. Um, but that, that was interesting. He jumped on a footlock trying to pass my guard. And uh, so, so that was funny. Um, but uh, no, it, it, it's all just fun. But, you know, hard. But, you know, it's like you go on that 80% where you're kind of being technically as good as you can be and um, put putting a bit of, um, you know, chilly behind everything you're doing but but not trying to rip heads off but um it's uh i mean so some people were tapping and and uh yeah it was it was, it was good N- not for me <laughs> <laughs> so really, a lot of people will be listening to this and going uh ian ask the question ask the question so i'm going to ask the question you've obviously rolled with me reed when i was a yeah. blue belt and i'm a brown belt but obviously you rolled me as a blue belt and you rolled with nagara who was tougher <laughs> yeah well I, I i would have said your leg locks were on point but um <laughs> They're jumping on that one. It's uh, it's uh, it, it, it's hard to. Say. I, I I reckon it comes down to the day. I reckon if you got better sleep, then uh, then you might get him. Well, I, I went back the other day for the first time in nearly a year and a half. I'm having this this issue with my neck and surgery. I went back, and the first thing I was doing was just grabbing people's ankles, and people were like, "Oh, you're back." I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> I can't play the strength game. I'm just gonna grab ankles. I'm too old for that now. Just gonna grab your ankle and take it off." Yeah. And my wife has started uh, grabbing people's ankles now as well. So she's been training once I've been away. She's been going every week. She's probably on the verge of getting her purple belt now. Um, and she's been just like, yeah, ripping people's ankles off. She's been just training with guys. And so she's been, uh, next thing now she's gone is, I need to learn heel hooks. <laughs> uh, the dark side. <laughs> the dark side. So Reid, you're back now in Shanghai. And so you obviously do this quarantine. And then it's back to the PI and business as usual, is it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's uh, that's about it. So I'll get out of here on uh, maybe November the 9th. and um, and then I don't know where I'm going to go. I think I need to get a uh, like an apartment for one month or a hotel for a week and, and look for new apartments because I've got to find a new apartment to live in. I was uh, fortunate enough to put all my stuff in storage during this COVID time and save myself, um, you know, six months of exorbitant Shanghai rent. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I'll, I'll be apartment shopping and. And then winter's about to hit here, so I kind of missed out on the whole, um, you know, good weather period. But um, I mean, it wasn't too bad. I was in Bali for six months, so so, so that wasn't terrible. <laughs> and uh, yeah, 
I actually like just just to fill you in on the 1.5 laps around the world. I, I went Shanghai to Chiang Mai in Thailand, and Chiang Mai to Bangkok, the Bangkok to Auckland for the Felder Hooker event, and then Auckland to Vegas, and then Vegas to Florida, and then I was going to go back to Australia, but then Australia went crazy with the lockdown, so then I ended up in Bali, thinking that I would then go back to China. Um, at that stage it was like if i was outside the us for 14 days i could fly back to, to china and then um and then on day nine of 14 in bali uh, china closed its borders completely to all foreigners and um and so then i got stuck in bali but then fortunate the indonesian government did like um cancelled flights to to indonesia for, for foreigners but had like emergency visas in place so i was able to just wait in bali for six oh, months yeah. nice everything to blow over and then obviously Bali to uh, Abu Dhabi and, and then finally back back here a couple of days ago it's it's been um interesting time it's actually been quite good to me the COVID time so um you know which is obviously not the case for everybody so uh, I've been quite fortunate this year excellent all right Reed. um hold on a sec because I need to talk to you about a study <laughs> Yeah. But uh, just to close out this one, um, if people want to follow you, they can follow you on Instagram. I think at Read Real is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't used to do it, but now I'm trying to do it more. It's um, it's very painful. It takes me like 25 minutes each time I make a post. So I, I try and do them, but it's not as prolific as or, or as frequent as it should be. And is your website still live, the dietitian one? It is, but I need to update it. It's it's CombatSportsNutrition.com. Um, yeah. But it still says that I do consults and things, which I do not. Um, I need to update that website. So if you're looking for a consult, um, call call um, Jordan Sullivan, the fight dietitian. But uh, if you need consulting or or somebody to give a presentation or something, and, and you want to pay me good money, I'll, I'll be happy to do that. Um, yeah, and and there's I, I still have an ebook for sale. That's CombatSportsNutritionEbook.com. Easy. All right. Thanks, Reed. We'll uh, we'll stop it there. Thanks very much, man. No problem.